What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jared Magazine. And if you're new around here, welcome. Thank you for joining us. If you've been listening for the past two months, thank you so much. Thank you so much for continuing to show your support. It's time for the craziest news that I heard this week. And I want to keep it fall themed because here we are, the middle of October. You've probably already done your apple picking. If you're in New England, the leaves are changing. It's getting darker faster. It's a nice fall crisp evening. Um, but here you go. Here's a fall-themed odd news of the week. So uh, in Half Moon Bay, California, they hold a annual pumpkin competition. And a 2,350-pound pumpkin called the Tiger King has been named the winning pumpkin in the competition. Travis Geyinger of Minnesota grew the pumpkin and told CNN that he felt honored uh, to win the Super Bowl of pumpkins. Congrats to you, Travis. Uh, thank you so much for naming it the Tiger King. I think that's what I love the most about this story is here we go. We've probably forgotten about that great documentary that we all watched in March uh, during quarantine, thinking that once we finish this documentary, quarantine will be over, right? I'm glad that we can refresh our memory of the Tiger King. What a great documentary. Congrats to, to Travis. Uh, he took home a winnings of $16,450. Looks like we should all be um, growing some pumpkins in our free time to get that extra cash flow here. But yeah, uh, that's the craziest news that I heard this week. As always, support for the Normal Guy Lazy Eye podcast is brought to you by the team over at Manscaped. Autumn is in the air, as I've mentioned, and Manscaped is here to ensure that you don't carve your pumpkins when you're grooming. And by pumpkins, we actually mean your boys downstairs. In fact, Manscaped is on a mission to change the way you approach to caring for your balls. And great news, they just released their products in UK, Canada, and Australia. Guys, the Lawnmower 3.0, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's the Tesla of electric trimmers. Stop buying the cheap stuff at your local pharmacy. Get the real deal care for the things that you care about most. Let's be honest. Uh, the, the Lawnmower 3.0 ensures that you're not going to have any grooming accidents. They also have a LED light which helps illuminate grooming areas. And the best of all, it's waterproof, so you can groom in the shower and not have to worry about getting electrocuted. Guys, I want you to experience this for yourself firsthand, so I'm here to help you out. So you're going to get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the code LAZYEYE. That's right, get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com with the code LAZYEYE, all caps, all one words, Make your balls a priority this fall. This is the Normal Guy Lazy Eye Podcast, a true eye-opening experience. So on this week's episode, I'm bringing on the one and only Liz Mealy. Liz is a stand-up comedian originally from New Jersey. She now lives in New York City. I first heard of Liz uh, during her appearance on another podcast, KFC Radio from Barstool, and I absolutely got obsessed. I immediately started watching her specials on YouTube, and I think she's just a comedic genius. Um, so we we had a conversation around, obviously, her start in, in comedy, but I think there's a lot to be said about stand-up comedy in the world today. I think uh, during the coronavirus and during this new world that we're living in, stand-up comedy and performing in general probably took a, the biggest hit of all. Um, so it's been interesting to see 
uh, comedians pivot during this, you know, doing Zoom shows or doing uh, shows outdoors. So we talk all things uh, coronavirus comedy. I'm absolutely obsessed with stand-up comedy. I actually <laughs> I had this thing that I would listen to comedy before I went to bed. Now, I know that doesn't make any sense because how would you fall asleep to laughing, but it worked for me. Uh, I don't do it anymore because I barely get any sleep. But here is an absolutely incredible interview with the one and only Liz Mealy. All right. Well, I want to welcome on a very special guest. She is Liz Mealy. She is a stand-up comedian from New Jersey. She's been on Comedy Central's Live at Gotham, NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Hulu's coming to the stage, and she recently just released her first special on YouTube, Self Help Me. Liz, thank you so much for coming on. It's awesome to get to connect with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. How are things going? We, we were talking a little bit about it before the show. You have stuck it out in New York City through and through this through, during this pandemic. How have you been? I, I feel like, you know, there's all these tiers of what it means to be like a New Yorker, like how you kind of get your New York cred. And I have jokes about it, but I feel like if you stayed, no matter if you've been here a year or like almost 20 years like me, if you stayed in New York City during the pandemic, doesn't matter that I had nowhere to go, by the way. It does not matter. I'm not- Irrelevant I, to the story. Irrelevant. I think if you stayed here, you're a true New Yorker. All, I don't care if you came from Michigan tw- like two months before the pandemic, if you stayed through it. I'm proud of you. You're a New Yorker. And are so. you not a New Yorker if you fled to your parents' house? Oh, yeah. And- you go fuck yourself. I don't care if you were born here. I don't even care if you were born. You can say that. I was born in the Bronx. I love the Bronx. But as soon as things got bad, you went to Delaware or wherever people went. Sarasota. Then- or, you yeah, know. yeah. No. But I know I'm going to get, like, hate mail for that. But um, okay. <laughs> I'm just like, That's eh. awesome. um, But, yeah. No, there's there's – it definitely feels like we went through something. I mean, now all states are going through something, but like, yeah. you know, we, nobody wanted us. I, I mean, I could have like seen a friend, but like I tore naturally. So I was just excited to sleep in my own bed for the first time. I bought a new bed in February. I've had the oh. same bed for 15 years Whoa. and <laughs> I bought a new bed frame. I still have the same mattress, but I bought a new bed frame because it was just falling apart and it just made me sad. And I was so excited. Like, I was like, I spent money on it. So like yeah. that, that kind of hurts. Your because, baby. Yeah. Well, I could use that money right now. Um, right. But I bought it like February 25th. And then I went off to Europe and I was like, this is kind of silly. I'm going to be gone for a month and a half in this bed I'm not using. And then the pandemic happens and they said we're going to be home. You know, at first they thought for a couple of months. Now it's forever. Um, right. But I'm like, pretty good purchase. <laughs> to be honest, like probably one of the best investments to make in a pandemic. Um, I keep looking yeah. at it like just like a proud. You're like, I can't wait. I'm, like, can't wait for the <laughs> I'm like, that's where I put my head. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And uh, you, so you originally, you grew up in New Jersey, correct? Yeah, I was in central Jersey um, from one to 18. Okay. And you grew up with four siblings. Is that correct? Yep. I have, well, I have a lot of family. <laughs> yeah. What was that like growing up in central Jersey with, with four siblings? Um, you know, you have to fight for attention. Maybe that's why I became a comic. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of fighting over clothes, food, and attention. Um, I still feel like I do that. I have two roommates right now and people are like, how do you live with so many people? I'm like, this is small. Like <laughs> I shared a room with two of my siblings for half of my life. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I have a lot of friends as an adult now that didn't have any siblings that were like only kids. And I kind of, 
I think when I was growing up, I was like, this sucks. But now as an adult, except around Christmas time, I really like it. I mean, Christmas time is like, I don't have money for all these siblings. And this yeah. and my <laughs> has three kids. And it's just like, where's all this money coming from for gifts? Like right. my brother, Greg, doesn't give gifts. So I'm like, why do I keep buying him shit? Like <laughs> he doesn't even give me a card. Like even if he gave me a card that said, I love you, I would still buy him a gift, but he doesn't give anything. And uh, not that it's supposed to be tip for tap, but I was like, this right. kid has, he has more money than I do. Why am I getting him a gift? <laughs> so I was like, fuck it. I'll just get dope gifts for like my niece and nephew and like everybody else can fend for themselves. I like stopped buying my siblings gifts. I was like, they all have better jobs than I do. What am I right. doing? Right. Are they all pretty close to you now in, from New York or are they all We're spread all out? all over the place. Um, yeah. Uh, so I have one, so actually Greg, Greg was in Boston for years. So my, my youngest brother was in Boston, but now he's actually in the city, but he's the one that I don't, I always say our relationship is like, it, our texts read like a wrong number exchange. Um, <laughs> Who is I this? love him and he's, he's better in person, but he is, he's very much a 20 something year old boy, whatever he is. And mm-hmm. then, um, my brother, Sam lives at home and then Emmy's in California and Teresa's in Virginia. Yeah, my my family is spread out too. I have two oldest sisters and one twin brother. I'm in Boston. He's oh, wow. in Maryland. They're in Idaho and Utah. So it's like, are you identical you, twins? Fraternal twins. Okay, I was gonna say yeah. if you're identical, it's kind of cool to have him far apart because you can have your own identity. Yeah, I I never felt yeah like being a fraternal twin. I never felt like he like he has. So you're, you're looking at me now. I have brown hair, glasses, obviously a lazy eye. He has blonde hair, no glasses. He didn't walk on his tippy toes as a kid. That was me. He like doesn't have perfect vision, and it's so just yeah. we're just like polar opposites. So it was yeah. never like oh like my twin brother like you like everyone knows him. It was like that's Aaron, that's Jared. So that was kind of nice. And then my two older sisters, they were just like way older than me. So yeah. <laughs> so really you're just going around just being like, I have one brother and we just share a birthday and that's annoying. Yeah. And now I'm like 20, almost 23. And I'm like, Oh, look, I have four nieces and nephews. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm the, I'm the fun uncle. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you're, you're like, I'm the one with energy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but so I read that you started doing comedy as early as 16. Were you always drawn to comedy as a kid? I always wanted to be funny. I think my family, like my parents have such a great sense of humor. Like my mom is really funny. I think now, you know, she was kind of mostly crazy when I was younger. And now I can really see like her humor. Like my mom makes me laugh so much. And like, she's just, she just fucking says it as it is. So, and then my dad just appreciates humor. He's more like dad jokes, but my dad like is funny in a different way. And then he also just like appreciates it. So I came from a family that appreciated it mm-hmm. and could see it, which I think is important. The same way that some families might be able to see a visual artist or a musician or intelligence. Um, I think certain families can nurture a trait as opposed to um, trying to get you to push it aside or what have you. So I feel fortunate that I was in a humor nurturing family. Um, And then I always loved funny movies and I, you know, watched SNL and I was like quoting Dana Carvey and like Mike Myers when I was a kid. Um, yeah. That was, that was my crew. You're younger right. than I am, but that was like, <laughs> those were the people when I was 12 that were, you know, on TV. So I was always quoting them and making people laugh by like quoting TV and stuff. And then I thought I wanted to be a funny actress. Um, but it's funny how you, even when things are like kind of what you want, but there's some kind of disconnect, but you're too young to understand why. I just was never drawn to acting. Like it just didn't seem that fun, but I liked the reaction that funny actresses were getting. So I thought I wanted to be like 1995 Sandra Bullock. Mm -hmm. And 
not blindside Sandra Bullock. Yeah, not, no, that's too, what, what, I don't want that hairdo or that responsibility <laughs> to make people cry. I don't want to inspire anybody. I want yeah. to prat fall Sandra Bullock. And then, um, and then I discovered stand-up, like it just was on TV and I was like, what the fuck is this? And I was so, like, it was funny. It was like, just, you know, bare bones, say it as it is. People got to say their opinion. I was always into writing. Mm-hmm. but I'm dyslexic and I was scared for people to see my writing. Even today, I I'm so terrified. I'm going to lose a notebook. I've yet to lose a notebook publicly. And Knock I'm on very, wood, yeah, yeah I, I still don't want that even in my thirties, but I, I didn't want anybody to ever see my writing, but I wanted people to take in my writing because I was really proud of it. And this was like the perfect compromise. I get to be funny. People get to hear my words and my opinions, but they never have to see it. And mm-hmm. I just, as soon as I discovered it, I just ate it up. And so I started writing jokes when I was 14. Um, I had a girlfriend, a, a friend that's a, a, still a good friend of mine from um, high school that got, bought me like a how to do stand up book. Um, my three closest girlfriends came to see me do stand up for the first time when I was 16. Um, still come to shows, still supportive. Like it's, it was just, once I discovered it, it, it became like an obsession. Yeah. What was, what was that like going to do open mics at 16? I mean, like I I could be wrong, but like in the city, it's usually like 18 and over, right? Like were you. So there's a little bit of wiggle room in the Mm -hmm. sense that if they, even today, if they um, serve food, you can have somebody that's under 18. Mm -hmm. So some comedy clubs let 16 year olds in some let 14 year olds in some it's like, if there's a parent Um, and my parents had their own rule, which is I, I was coming from Jersey that I always had to have a parent. But yeah. like I was doing, um, I was doing shows where like I would do bringer shows, which is when you bring five paid guests, you, you can do five minutes of stage time. Um, and that way I would always ask like if a parent could come, but if I couldn't, I would ask my parents, but I didn't want them to come. So I would literally bring six people and then make my dad sit in a Starbucks and oh, wow. wait for me. So he would come, it's about an hour and 15 minutes on the train. He would yeah. sit in a Starbucks and read. I would do my show. If it didn't go well, my dad would be like, how'd it go? And I was like a bitch, like truly. Like, <laughs> I was like, I was like, not good. I don't want to talk about it. And then I wouldn't talk to my dad the whole way home. Like, that's insane. Also, yeah, like you just sat there, hour 15 car ride to watch, to not even watch me do five minutes. And I don't want to speak a word to you on this. Oh yeah, I'm angry about it. Back. Oh yeah. yeah. I, 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 now, like whenever my boyfriend's like, you're insane. I would be like, you're not wrong. And I, I really <laughs> feel like my dad should have prepared you. But <laughs> I will say this, like I, I did get kicked out. I got, there was this one place. I don't think it exists anymore. It was a strip club and next door to it, they made a comedy club. And I got kicked out of that place twice. And like, they would have strippers like walk through because they were yeah. attached and like, you know, they would go to wherever they're going. Um, <laughs> doing probably, stripper things. Do whatever they're doing. I'm, you yeah. know, no judgments. Yeah. Um, but I probably did five shows there and twice I came all the way from New Jersey. You know, I looked, I look 16 now. God knows what I fucking looked like when <laughs> I was 16. Got kicked out twice and like me and my friends all had to leave. Um, so I like, came to the city for no reason. So I got kicked out of some places, some places, you know, they kind of like, don't look or whatever yeah. you know all, me and my friends we weren't trying to drink or anything they just wanted to see me do stand-up and I just wanted to do stand-up um I weaseled myself into any place I could um yeah I I I'm pretty lucky only getting kicked out of a couple of different places but there's a little bit of wiggle room with that food thing and comedy yeah. clubs specifically and then um um, when you're a performer, there's a little bit of wiggle room in the sense that you can come in, do your performance and leave. And that's what I tried to convince 
that strip club place a couple of times. And I think I won <laughs> once um, yeah. where it's just like, let's just, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, I'll come in, go on stage and get off and leave. Like, yeah. just let me, I'm not going to touch any booze. I'm not going <laughs> to touch any boobs. I'm going to touch nothing. <laughs> I just want to tell jokes. So. No boobs, no booze. You got yeah, it. <laughs> everybody knows before you're 18, don't touch them. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about the laws. <laughs> There's no laws in quarantine at this point. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids are drinking. We can't. Stop yeah. It. Yeah. So who was like the first or you know, first couple stand up comedians that really like influenced you or, or grabbed your attention? Um, what influenced me as much as um, uh, grabbed my attention is probably different. Like I was obsessed with Mitch Hedberg. I still love Mitch Hedberg. Did you watch any? I mean, he's a little bit. Before, he died probably before you. Yeah, were. I've heard. I've heard the name. It just. Yeah, I haven't. I don't think I've watched him. Oh uh, yeah, he died. God, fifteen years ago. Mm-hmm. So I could see how um, it would be hard for you to glom on. He has two or three albums out and I highly recommend I mean he was brilliant he's yeah I'll definitely check it out he's still you even if you just look up some of his tv appearances he's very like um one-liners compared to Stephen Wright who's more you know 70s 80s right um but but all of his own and what I loved about him is he took really simple concepts and made them so funny and digestible that every single day I think of one of his jokes. I mean, I probably haven't even listened to one of his albums in years, but like he had a joke where he was like, escalators can never be broke. They can only become stairs. Sorry for the convenience. (laughs) Or like I I was hanging out with some friends of mine and they gave me a Sprite. I haven't had a Sprite in years, but it always makes me think of Mitch Hedberg because he goes, you know, they say Sprite is just lemon and lime, but I tried it and there's gotta be more to it than that. Like (laughs) they're really stupid, but they're really silly. And it's also about his delivery. He has a very unique delivery. Yeah. I just loved him. And I just thought like he just made, he had an interesting perspective and a silly perspective to everything. And he's so quotable, as you can see, I just, I don't know. I loved him. Um, I liked a lot of dead people. Greg Giraldo, I loved. Like, he died, I think, 10 years ago. Um, I just, he was weirdly political without feeling like he was political. And he had strong opinions. And he made, he was just so smart and made you think about stuff you wouldn't have thought about while also being very silly. I love that combination of, like, smart and silly. And I think both of them really towed that line very well. Wanda Sykes was probably one of my favorites. Yeah, she's incredible. And what's crazy because I discovered her when she was on Comedy Central and like, you know, I think when I discovered her, she was probably writing for Chris Rock. Like she was Mm -hmm. like clearly established in her career, but not the Wanda Sykes that everybody knows now. So 20 years ago, 20, 25 years ago, she was Wanda Sykes Hall. She was married to a man. And then you fast forward and, you know, she came out as gay. She now has a French wife. She used to, mm-hmm. she used to have jokes about saying she would never have kids. And now she has a bunch of kids. Right. So even her, I've heard her joke about dating men to her joking about having kids and dating, a, you know, being married to a woman. And like, she always felt like somebody that could literally joke about anything. Like, right. it, like she has jokes about dolphins. She has jokes about Enron and like, you know politics and white people and like i just feel like whatever she talks about is always so unique and funny Mm -hmm. so i I would say like those were like the three when i was a teenager that really and of course i like george carlin and richard Pryor, and you could go on and on about the greats i love dave chappelle i loved chris rock but i think weirdly enough those three had gave me such a foundation of the type of comic i wanted to be as opposed to just what i found funny 
No, I like that answer because I I had an idea of like you're gonna say like George Carlin or Richard Pryor, but I like that I I had never heard of those comics, and I'm definitely gonna check those out. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. So by the time you're 18, you're profiled in New York Magazine, and by 22, you're on Comedy Central's Live at Gotham. Did you like? Was it happening really fast for you? Did you expect kind of this this kind of like quick turnaround on all this? Um, it didn't feel like it was happening fast. It it it, it still doesn't feel like it all went away very fast. Like right. it's it's. I got a lot of positive attention pretty early in the sense that like minor goals came pretty quickly. And I, I was grateful for that because the minor goals was stage time and getting passed at clubs, which to get passed at a club just means that you are, you regularly put in your avails so that you can get work there and that you also get paid spots there as opposed to there's so much free work you do in the beginning mm -hmm. of comedy, just to get your name out there, just to get stage time. Like it, it becomes a gift just to get consistent stage time that right. the allure of even making money seems so far away. So I got past, I don't know how many clubs or comedy clubs were in the city now, let alone when I was a teenager, but let's just say there's 10 comedy clubs. I got past at like four of the major comedy clubs when I was 19, meaning wow. that I was getting either regular spots or I was getting regular uh, consistent spots with pay. And that means like, I wasn't working the weekends, which even that's a next tier. I was work I was getting a $25 spot on a Monday at the comic strip, but that was, I'm telling you, there's comics that have been doing this much longer than mm -hmm. my three years in that weren't getting that. So I was because I was young, because I was a girl, um, I, you know, I was decent, but like, even I can tell you, I, I don't feel like I was good enough to get what I got when I was 19, but I had some value in the sense that I stood out and I was different and they saw potential. So um, I feel very lucky in that sense, because I got a lot of stage time very early and the more stage time you get, the stronger you can become as a comic, the more comfortable you get on stage and the more connections you're able to make with people, which is also a lot of how people get opportunities. And then I got on TV six years in and that felt too late. Like it felt like I was being ignored. That felt too late. Yeah. Like whatever. And then it all kind of dried up afterwards. So um, I felt like I, I, in some ways rushed to the middle and then I flatlined for years. And only in the last year, do I feel not only in the last year, but let's say maybe the last three years, have I felt more movement and I had to do most of it on my own, which I'm mm. not mad about it because most people in their career have to do it but I did have a little bit of a cushy rise and it was a rude emotional awakening <laughs> to yeah. do the work on my own why do you think it why do you think it it dried up so quickly to your point earlier um I personally think it was two reasons I think I was um and they're same same side of the, same side of the same coin that's not the mm. way that phrase works sure <laughs> there's a better way of saying that but it's not going to come to me um Two sides of the same coin. I think yes. that's what the phrase is. Um, yes. I don't think I was comedically mature enough in the sense that I wasn't writing as much and as mature in my writing and as pre uh, prolific in my writing because that takes its own work. And you don't really right. know how much you need until you've done it before. It's a little of a catch-22 in that sense. So I don't think I was comedically mature enough. And then I don't think I was emotionally mature enough. And I honestly think the emotional is more important than the comedic because I know tons of comics that aren't ready for the opportunities they've had, but um, still get them. But I don't thrown think, into the fire. Yeah, I don't think I was emotionally mature enough. I don't think I understood my anxiety. 
I don't think I understood um, what I wanted, why I wanted it, what I was looking for, how to be ready for it. I, I think I did some self-sabotaging that I'm still kind of coming to grips with. Um, I just don't think, well, yeah, I just, maybe if I was given, maybe if I was, I started later, or if I was given those opportunities later where I kind of knew myself a little bit better, I would have been able to kind of grab onto them. But mm -hmm. there's a little bit of, um, the same way that like, think about it this way. You give, you give a 12 year old a hundred dollars. That's, that's a fair amount of money. And if right. they blow it on some Nerf guns and whatever, you're a little bit like, Hey man, you should have like spent 30 of it and saved the rest of it. Now, right. <laughs> if somebody hands me a hundred dollars, I'm like, let's go into my savings account. We don't know when there's going to be another pandemic. Like, right. you know, like it could be right around the corner. <laughs> so it feels like when I get opportunities now, I understand their value. And I try to do as much with them as possible, as opposed to before these opportunities were in a void that had nothing to do with cherishing them. Right. If that makes any sense. No, definitely. That definitely does. What was, what was like your parents' consensus on your career as it was kind of getting this kickstart? Were, were they supportive? What was that like from your parents? It's so funny. I'm very fortunate. So my parents, I had to like break the news. I've always wanted to do a joke about it. I had to like break the news to my parents. I was becoming a comic the same way I feel like a gay kid would. Like I was so... <laughs> terrified. Yeah. To, I, so my parents are both veterinarians. They own their own animal hospital. I was a crazy cat lady, even when I was 12. And I was going to be the veterinarian. Like everybody was like, we're going to pass it down to Liz. She's going to be a vet. I said I was going to be a vet. And then I discovered stand up, and I quickly understood that I'm not smart enough, nor do I want to do the work, nor do I want to fucking ever work for my parents. I love them, but no, thank you. Um, even though God knows I would be so financially set right now. And that's so dumb. Um, <laughs> I should have just like been a vet for like five years and then fucking become a comic. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's great material there too. <laughs> right. I could have had so many great, I mean, I already have a cat abortion joke, but I feel like I could have had a yes. really good, like an ex next level. Next um, level. <laughs> you know, I could have like really- Bit more detail. <laughs> yeah. Just really accurate. Um, so, so I broke the news to my parents when I was like, I think 15 or 16, like sat him down and was like, I'm not, and like, which has got to be really silly because like, what the fuck do I know? And you know, it's not even like I'm going to college yet or whatever. I don't like, I don't fully remember it. I don't remember them being mean or anything. And my dad, right. my dad was actually very supportive in the sense that he was like, well, if you want to be a comic, you should write to other comics and get advice from people already doing it. And then my mom was kind of like, okay, like my mom didn't care. My I told my mom I was becoming a comic. Like I told her I was going to sail across the seas tomorrow. She was like, all right, be safe. You know, like, just like Godspeed. Yeah. Good luck to you. Like she, I think she thought I was a little cuckoo, but at the same time, she was like, it doesn't sound like she's doing drugs or like in crime. So right. I guess it's fine. That's all you can hope for. And then I started performing. I lied to them. I think the first two times. And then I finally told them, and maybe that's when I broke it to them. I don't even remember. Um, I don't really remember my childhood. Um, so the, the, the first thing they put their foot down was me going to the city without a parental figure and it could right. be them or a friend. And I was really, I lied a lot and I was really butthurt about it. And I was, I kept thinking, my dad is very strict, but I kept in this scenario, I think they both did a really nice thing for me. And if you think about it, I was like, oh, my parents are fucking up my butt and I just want to go see. But this was a year after 9-11. I am uh -huh. not even, I'm maybe five foot. I'm almost five one right now. So I wasn't even fully grown then. So yeah. I'm a five foot girl, 16 years old that looks like she's 12. 
it's a year after 9-11 and I'm going to New York City and my parents grew up in Jersey and Pennsylvania. My mom wasn't too far from the city, but they still have like 1972 New York City in sure. their head. Don't all my their parents, parents though, like everyone's like, the world's in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, no, they just didn't update it. And like, my mom is very scared of the city. Even like when I went to college, my parents are like, don't die. And I'm like, it's fine. Like I've been coming here every weekend since I was 16. So um, they were scared for me. It was post 9-11. I'm a girl, I'm young, I'm going into clubs. It's late at night. Nice. You know, we're talking about nine o'clock shows and they were like, you have to have a parental figure. And I'm like, they were really lenient when I think about it. Like, I can't believe they let me do that. And then when I got into college, I convinced them to let me, cause I was only going Saturday and Sundays when I was in high school. And then senior year of high school, after I had gotten into college in New York city, I convinced them to let me go Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Oh, wow. Then my dad tried to convince me when I was in college, I was only allowed to do stand up on the weekends and I had to focus on my studies. And I was like, cool, totally dad. And then I did it every single night of the week and I did all my homework <laughs> at a bar and a comedy club because I mm. wanted to be like, I was very, I was always a very responsible, irresponsible person. So my parents couldn't fight me too much on my pastime because I got the grades. I would babysit my brothers when they asked. Nobody's calling, like, I did drugs, but they didn't know that. Like, my mom right. kind of knows now because of jokes, but, like, they didn't know I was doing it when it was happening. So I was very responsible, irresponsible person. I would say the, and then I will give my dad credit as well. When I, I got grounded when I was, like, 17, and my dad oh. took away everything. I couldn't hang out with yep. my friends. Been I couldn't there. watch TV. I couldn't go, in, we had one computer. I couldn't go on the computer except to, like, write papers. Mm. And I remember going into his room and being like, you can take it all away for as long as you want. I was like, but you can't take away stand up. I was like, that's not fair. I was like, wow. I will go there, do my gigs and come back. I'll call you. I won't hang out with my friends after, but I don't think it's fair for you to take that away because that's the only thing I have. And my dad listened. My dad was like, okay. He goes, you have to tell me what train you take. You have to tell me when, you know, what time the show is and when you're coming home, but you can do that. And that's, yeah. That's a big deal because like that he's huge. He's trying to hurt me. You know what right. I mean? He's taking away my friends and my TV. Right. And he still let me do stand up. And that's, I give my dad a lot of credit for that. I have to give you a lot of credit for doing that too. I remember I got grounded pretty much the same age. I did something pretty bad and something I definitely shouldn't have done. And they took- <laughs> Look, I killed a man. It was pretty bad. <laughs> it, was, it was murder. Uh, no. <laughs> it, 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 it well Light murder. Because- like, like third degree. Like- yeah. It might as well have been it. because I came home on a Monday after school after what had happened in the weekend that got me in trouble. And I went upstairs. Everything in my dresser was on the floor. My bed was stripped of its clothes. Or sorry, stripped of its sheets, stripped of its clothes. Yeah. And like I, I was like, oh my God. And they were like, phone, computer, everything downstairs. And I like, I walk like a <laughs> dog with his tail in between his legs. yeah, like, yeah. yeah anything you want anything like yeah, yeah, yeah. i just i never had the balls to like be like no you can't take this away from me so i i have to give you a lot of credit that's that, that takes i don't a lot. know where that comes from even when people ask me like how did i start doing stand-up at 16 i was like i don't have self-esteem now <laughs> like mm. i don't know i don't i think it was desperation like it, i just loved it so much and it made me feel even just watching it let alone writing and performing that like just the gumption to do it, it. I, I've read enough studies on psychology that shows that when you do something, whether it's like deciding to start running or start a business, the, the, the benefits outweigh the pain or the fear. Yeah. 
So whatever fear I had in performing or rejection or bombing or people thinking I'm a loser or whatever it is that would have prevented me from doing it, the, the feeling of it working out or being able to do it or, you know, my baby goal when I was 16 is I just wanted to be established enough that I could go to shows for free. That was my goal. I just wanted to be, and now I go to shows for free all the time because I'm the next comic up and like, I still get a little dorky and I, I still love comedy as much as I did when I was a kid. I would say the only difference is my, what is, what I think is good comedy is vastly changed. Like somebody will tell me, Oh, I love blah, blah, blah. And I'll, I'll just go, cool. And they'll be like, do you know blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, oh, I have different tastes, but I, they're wonderful. And in my mind, I'm like, they're trash. Like yeah. that's one of the worst comics I've ever heard. And I'm like judging their choices, but I would never say that because right. they don't see the best stand-up comics every night in clubs to know that that joke is hack and everything he does is hack. And yeah. that's, that's not their fault. No. Just like they, just I heard could, the, they just heard the album on Pandora. What, you can't yeah, blame yeah, them. I'm not going to judge them, but yeah. But like the same way that I might be like, oh, this book on science or like, you know how every space movie comes out and then they go, what do the real astronauts think? And they're like, this is trash. Like yeah. none the, of this could happen. Or the YouTube series of like, I'm a real doctor. Let's analyze Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no shit. It's that different. much sex in the break room. <laughs> the break rooms are gross and not because of the semen. Like exactly. Right. <laughs> Completely agree. Okay. So you, you talked a little bit about like, how your comedy has changed from a teenager to to now what has been like the overarching change that you've seen in comedy from when you first started in the early 2000s to to today um i would say um different uh that's a hard question um first of all just women just women and minorities of any kind being getting more stage time in general, plus getting on TV. Like it was so hard to get on TV as a woman even five years ago. But I feel like once women make money for somebody else, it's a go that there's a market for it. And it just kind of opened up the floodgates, not the floodgates, because it's still hard, but there's way more women on on stage now and on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, same, I would say the same with minorities. Like I look at like, um, Elliot Chang or not Elliot yeah. Chang, sorry, Ronnie Chang. Elliot yeah. Chang is another friend of mine, but Ronnie yeah. Chang specifically, I find, so first of all, Ronnie is a friend. He's brilliant. I, I love what he does and he's a teddy bear of a human. He's wonderful. But what I love about Ronnie as an example is Ronnie is originally from, um, Singapore, I believe. I think he's Malaysian, but he's originally from Singapore. And then he kind of, his career started in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, he kind of made a name for himself in Australia. Then he got on the daily show and now he has a name for himself in America. His special is brilliant. If nobody's seen it, it's on Netflix. But what I love about him is he has a pretty strong accent. And we, Mm -hmm. as Americans are asked, we don't even like the English accent. We Americanize English shows. Yeah. Do the same thing. Cause we're just like, I don't know. He's, he's saying love a lot and it's weird. Like, so <laughs> I think having an Asian American, Asian person, that's not American. So he's, he's from another country. He has a strong accent and he's on TV and he's doing jokes and he's not just making fun of his mom, which I feel like we allow, we allow, other cultures to make fun of themselves and that's the way we accept him but i feel like ronnie is just being 
Ronnie. I don't feel like he's being an Asian stereotype. I don't feel like he's being what he thinks Americans want them to say about him. Ronnie's just being Ronnie. And then he's also has this thick accent, which I think Americans tend to be very, um, what's the word? Just standoffish almost maybe. I wouldn't say standoffish. It's impatient. They're just like, I have to work for this. And yeah. this, isn't, this isn't for me. And mm. I feel like that's where you're seeing the real shift that we're letting other people's stories uh, be at the forefront and then not, and then allowing a, any minority, whether it's a woman, um, um, uh, uh, sexual orientation and or um, physical or ethnic background, or like the fact that like um, Remy, is it Youssef, um, has his show about being Muslim. Yes. We're yes. allowing other people's realities to be seen the way that they're seen normally, not being shown in a way that we can digest them. They're, we're, showing, we're showing real reality. And then we're also letting minorities just be people. We're letting yeah. women just be people as opposed to I have to be sexy or I have to be um, aggressive or like mm. I, don't have to be, I don't have to be in this filter that men will accept me or I don't have to be in this filter that Americans will accept me. I can just be me and an audience will come to me as yeah. opposed to I had to fit into this box of what the, they already think the audience is. Yeah. Why do you think comedy was so male dominant in, in the beginning? And, and still now, obviously it's, it's very much a, like a male dominant and obviously we're seeing the rise of females, but why do you think it was so dominant? Well, you have to, I mean, that this is all kind of systemic. We've told women that their voices don't matter all the time. I mean, we still tell women that their voices don't matter. So if you say, if, you know, it took us a while to get the right to vote, it took us a while to have our own money and to be um, of our own validity without men, um, to be told that our, um, our intellect is real, that our education matters, that um, we could be bosses, that we could um, uh, decide not to have kids, uh, to have kids and still have a career. Um, uh, we don't even value, like once our face goes, we're not even valued. Like the fact that they say there's a window, we have an expiration date of value yeah. just because of our appearance. You know, we're still fighting that kind of um, uh, statue of limitations on, on uh, where our value is that now we'll listen to pretty women, but if you're ugly, go fuck yourself. Or if you're over 40, go fuck yourself. Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways we've, repeatedly told women either blatantly or 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 subtly that our opinions don't matter so i get a lot of comments from guys and i have a lot of guy fans and they're they're nice but i don't think they realize what they're saying they'll go oh you're the first female comic i liked or i don't usually like female comics but you're great i'm not much different i'll give them a little bit of a leniency in the sense that i do think a lot of female tropes are still on tv and they're seeing this oversexed a uh, uh, mannish kind of comedy because they're still sure. the ones getting a majority of the chances. And there's such a diverse level of female voices that aren't getting seen as much because they've yet to show that they make money or they're not giving the same chances. I do think we can make money for industry. They're just not willing to make, take the chance. Yeah. But what I do believe is that, and I also hear it from women as well. I, I think we, you don't realize how that stuff kind of same with, you know, systemic racism. You don't realize things are being repeated to you and they get absorbed. And then you don't realize that you never watched a female comic 
because you've been told your entire life that their stories aren't relatable to you. Right. If I talk about going on a date, how is that any different from a guy going on the date? Even if my priorities are a little skewed, it's still two people in an awkward situation meeting for the first time. Why is my story of meeting a man all that much different of you seeing a woman if you don't, if you going on a date with a woman, if you believe that my story doesn't have value? And I'm yeah. not saying that these guys saying it believe that my story doesn't have value, but right. there has to be some, somewhere along the line, someone taught them that I have a very limited value system for them and they're not willing to hear my stories. So I get a lot of people shocked that they like my stories and I go, I'm just a human. Like I, I'm not saying I don't have female experiences or I don't see it from a female lens, but a female lens is just one of my lenses. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. I'm uh, a New Yorker. I'm a cat owner. I'm a comedian. I'm right. a, you know, I wear contacts. I live in a tiny apartment. I have two roommates. Like I have all these different, I hate the post office just like you hate the post office. <laughs> Why would my post office experience or my DMV experience be any different than your DMV experience? Right. So right. that's where it starts to get frustrated where you're like, yes, I might have a couple of things, but also I hear dick jokes all the time and I think they're funny and yeah. I don't have a dick. I don't, <laughs> I don't even know how they work. So it's like, I'm, they're still shocking to me. So it's like, I get that you don't understand my female problems, but if I can sit and listen to somebody talk about going to the doctor or their dick malfunctioning, you can listen to my period joke. I don't even have a period yeah. joke. They've scared me into thinking that I'm hack. If I talk about this thing that I experience right. for six days, every 28 days, yeah. What? And half the population is going through what I'm going through for 45 years. Right. It's just insane. Yeah. Like, why can a guy talk about his dick for, for an entire special? And then the second you make a period joke, it's like, you're like, hey, stop you right there. With me. And I want to be like, if you've even been around women. And, and that's where it gets upsetting is that there's a little bit of this barrier where they're like, your stories aren't relatable. And I go, maybe one or two. But if I do a good enough job, all my stories are relatable. So if I tell yeah. a story about bleeding through my underwear publicly, yes, maybe you don't go through that experience, but everybody has had fucking, you get something on your pants. You know what I mean? Like yeah, every, exactly. the emotions are all relatable. You've just decided that as soon as I talk about it, you're going to close off and you won't even get to the part where we can be related. Right. Definitely. Um, I'm very passionate. As you no, know. no, that was I, that, no, that was great. I loved it. Um, but so you talked I'm about like yelling at you, and you're like, yeah, it's, my, it's my fault. It's your podcast, and it's your Men. fault. No. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why you can't have nice things. Yeah, um, I just hang up on you. <laughs> come on, this podcast is over. Um, but you talked about it. So you've been you've been in New York for 18 years. Are you like obviously the, the pandemic has kind of changed things, and you've been through. Helen back for lack of a better term are you at a point where you're like new york you can never leave it are you at a point where you're like get me the heck out of here what's what's the general thought about new york right now uh it's hard because i thought i would never leave new york because this is where comedy is like this really is like the the you know <laughs> the epicenter yeah. both of comedy and corona and the pandemic <laughs> um um this is where great comics start. This is where great comics build up. This is where great comics live. This is where some of the best shows in the world are. Um, I love it here. I love how much stage time I could get here. I can't get it anymore. I love my peers. Um, 
it just, you know, it's the same way if you work for Apple, you're going to be in San Francisco okay, or wherever yeah. the fuck their offices are. You can't really be too many <laughs> other places. Right. So, and I already travel for a living. I, I don't know. I, I think some of it is like, this is my home and this is where I get to be myself whenever I want to be myself. Um, I really never saw myself leave. You know, you have moments where you're like, maybe I'll go to LA, but then you go to LA and you're like, I don't want to be in LA for more than a week. Um, nope. <laughs> it's, it's pretty, but like, where are you from? I forgot. I'm from Orange County. So I'm right there with you. Like, yeah, you, you grew, you up, grew there. up, you grew up in the bubble and you're like, Oh, this is great. And then you go and you're like, there's a whole different world out there. And then you go back and you're like, why is everyone trapped in this place? I love it. Don't get me wrong. Like, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna get like all my friends, the hundred people that followed me on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, gonna be like, nope, we're done. Get, yeah, yeah we're making. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because my sister, my sister was like, "Fuck LA, I hate LA." And then she moved out there for her husband, and she's been out there I think almost four years. The first two years, she was like, "Kill me." And then I kind of now was she's like, on her fourth juice cleanse. Truly, she loves it there. She's so fucking LA now, and I'm glad yeah. she likes it, and she, you know, she's happy out there, and I want her to be happy out there. Um, it would take a, I just don't like the comedy scene out there. That's really how I did. Like I would move to London before I moved to LA because I just like the comedy scene in London way more. And I like, I just feel like I can be more myself on stage in London than I can in California. What's the, what's the, like, give me the biggest difference between the comedy scene in New York and LA. Uh, nobody finds me funny. Um, I don't, I don't do well out there. I'm just too high strung and neurotic and loud and ranty. I think most people are like, just surf. Like it just feels yeah, like what's you're your very... problem. Yeah. A little get bit. A, um, get a juice cleanse. You'll be good. Yeah. Oh, sweetheart. You just need a coffee enema and you'll feel so much better. Um, we oh. do it in a cafe together. It's a really like spiritual experience. Um, I'll hold your hand. Yeah. I, you so in general, you can't get as much stage time. It's just yeah. not, it's, they're, it's saturated the same way, same way New York City is, but it's so spread out, unlike New York City, and you don't have as efficient of a subway. That's a generalization, but I've never taken your subway. There's um, just, there isn't one, so you're good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, there, there is, there but there is. There physically is, but yeah. people don't take it the same way no. they take the New York one. No, so you it, sit in traffic. That's so, yeah, bad. so everything is so much more... Uh, um, uh, takes longer to get to places. They're more widespread. So you can't do as many spots and there's not as many spots. And then you also have so many comics out there that get more priority over you because they're fucking on, you know, season seven of some show that um, it's just, it's harder, not the same quality of stage time and not as much stage time as opposed to New York City. You can get on a bunch of open mics, even as a nobody, you can get a fair amount of stage time here and really grow as a comic. I think it's much harder to grow out there. And then even established, it's hard for people to get stage time out there. I know people that are on regulars on TV shows that are still like, yeah, I only get up like twice a week. And I was like, that's horrible. I mean, now I, yeah. I've gotten up once a week on Zoom for yeah. months, which I never thought my life would be like. Um, and I'm really scared to see what New York City becomes post pandemic because you know i think a lot of these clubs are mom and pop shops that right. if they don't get the funding they're going to go out of work and then we feed off tourism and clearly we can't have tourism so i am scared to see what the future of comedy clubs even in new york city is going to be like and i think they're going to get hit pretty hard but as of now i'm still very much team new york city because it made me who i am and i like it here and Eventually, my friends will come back. I have some friends that did flee that I'm mad at. <laughs> yeah, not not real New Yorkers anymore. No, one was from Singapore, so I get it. Okay, we'll give him that. But every we'll every two that. weeks, I'm like, when are you coming home? He's like, why? 
Fuck off. When are you coming home? Can I have yeah. your apartment? He owns his apartment. I was like, can I have it? He's like, I'm going to come back. And I was like, doesn't I'll put my like brand it. new bed in there. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, it's weird. I have your keys. <laughs> um, you talked a lot about how as a, as a career, you've been traveling a lot. You before pandemic, you were traveling all over the world, Pakistan, even and then London. You have a great joke about London cops. That was that was so funny. Um, like, what is the biggest difference between doing comedy in the states versus abroad? Um, I feel fortunate that there isn't much of a difference. Like, be, like I was kind of talking about before, my jokes specifically are about emotions they're very yeah. personal and they're about relatable emotions so being scared being confused being angry being overjoyed so i don't have a lot of cultural references and even the little ones that i do have because what i've noticed is asia europe and australia which are like the areas that i've mostly gone to take in so much american television our accent doesn't really throw people off. Our right. cultural references don't really throw people off. You can talk about Marvel movies. The whole world watches them. Yeah. And then every movie or show is based in New York or LA. So you can talk about New York and the subway, even though they've never been on the subway, they kind of get the concept and understand it. And then I'm a crazy ranty, you know, Italian New Yorker kind of girl that I'm just like, there's, I literally like a stereotype. They're like, ah, forget about it. Like, I just feel like, <laughs> where's the meatballs? <laughs> I feel like such a caricature of a New Yorker and an Italian woman that they, I feel like they're like, they're meeting one of the Sopranos. They're like, I didn't know you still existed. Um, <laughs> I'm like Mario right now. Um, but I, if anything, I feel like, I'm accepted more. It depends on the country. It really is all over the place, but like Scandinavia, they speak better English than we do. Um, wow. Honestly, I feel like London, they're a little more reserved in their own lives, but they kind of love when you're not reserved because you're speaking their mind that they feel like they can't express. Um, so I really like the UK for that. And, um, I, I was surprised, like Asia is a little reserved, but I feel like they also kind of like, I, I had one of my best shows in the Philippines, like, and it was like, cause like the other thing is certain countries are also going to be expats. So like right. Singapore, I mostly did expats. Um, Thailand was mostly expats, but like the Philippines and even Malaysia was a little bit more um, local then of course, like I said, Scandinavia is going to be all local because they speak better English. Pakistan was all local. They, you know, English is their main language. Um, uh, you know, Australia, clearly no difference. Um, Did it surprise you the success that you saw abroad versus, I mean, like, obviously you had success oh, yeah. here in the oh, States, yeah. but did it surprise you like, wow, these people actually like think I'm funny and I'm nowhere near where they are in life? Yeah, a hundred percent. I, and I'm uncultured, extremely uncultured. I am a mm. moron. So I think what drove me to start going overseas was I did a lot of touristy places in New York and it was always English people coming up to me afterwards saying I was funny. And I was like, nobody feels that way. <laughs> like maybe I was born in the wrong place. And that kind of got me in my head. Like maybe I should go to England because they seem to like me. And then I did kind of like a working vacation in London, like eight years ago auditioned for a bunch of people, did a bunch of shows. It went so well. And then from there started getting more work and building tours off it. And at the time, 
the exchange rate was amazing. So it was like 1.6, meaning if, you know, I made a hundred dollars or a hundred pounds, I was coming home with 160 pounds, but then right. they also paid way more than they did in the U S. So both exchange rate and the fact that they paid better, I was coming home with bank. I was seeing the world and it was being paid for by somebody else. And I was being well-received and also it, it um, was giving me material. It was like a win, win, win situation. So yeah. I love it. And I keep pushing myself to see more and more places like this tour that I had to basically cancel in the middle of, I ended up going to one new place, which I went to Paris. Um, I had never been to France before, but I was supposed to go to Germany where I'd never been before. And then I was going back to Sweden and uh, Switzerland, which I had done years ago. But my goal every time I do go overseas is to find a new place. So like um, last year I did four cities in Australia. I had never been to Australia before. Uh, the year before that, I did Pakistan, which I had never done. Uh, I did Kuwait this year or last year. Um, there's like, a, like I tried to get as many new places as possible just to see new things, to experience new things, to yeah. meet new people and, and just to see where my standup is relatable. Yeah. And do you still hate koalas after your time in Australia? Well, that's the, that's the thing is like, I'm, gl I'm glad I saw them and I got to hold them, but like, I, I'm, I held my koala in Brisbane and it was like my worst shows. Like, uh, like I did well in Sydney, mm -hmm. I did well in Tasmania and I did well in Melbourne, but Brisbane was where you're legally allowed to hold koalas. Cause not every um, state there you're allowed to, or I yeah. don't know. I think they're called states. Re yeah. Region states, something like that. Sure. Um, but uh, Brisbane, which is in, I don't, I'm going to sound like an idiot. Cause they're like, there's Queensland and there's like all these things, whatever, wherever Brisbane is that state or whatever it is they let you hold koalas, but certain other ones don't. So I was so excited. I did a really great podcast with some friends out there. I got to see one of my favorite comics who's become a friend of mine, this woman named Sarah Milliken. She's an, a UK comic that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, and I love her. So I got to see her live, which I had never gotten to do. And I got to hold a koala. That all happened within the first two days. And then I bombed almost every single show in Brisbane. They kept oh. saying Brisbane was the Texas of Australia, but I was like, I do great in Texas. Like that's mean. Like, I Texas. got this. Yeah, I was like, I was like, ooh. So I think I did like five shows in Brisbane and only two went well. And it was just a really uh -huh. hard week for me. So I love koala. koalas, but I'm never going to go back and visit them because I don't like Brisbane. Sorry, Brisbane. I was say, you took it out on the koalas? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to shift gears here just a little bit. So, you know, in today's world, we, we're here in 2020. We're approaching another election. We've, we've gone through the ringer, obviously, in 2020 as, as a as a country and as a world, but some comedians complain about today's climate and it's not safe to say anything. And we cross this line and, and although it's just jokes, they get this, you know, they get canceled. What like has like the cancel culture felt like you've been a victim of it or how does it, how does it shape comedy today? Um, it's definitely made me more aware, which I'm not saying is a bad thing. Um, and I definitely have had people stop following me for things that I've said, which is, upsetting because so there's two things you have to know if you go to a comedy club you're in a room that has said everything here is a joke so there's a lot more leniency even in today's culture that if it's set on stage and it's in this room in this building that says comedy club there's a bit of a leniency but then what i do think is happening because things go viral online is you're no longer in this safe bubble of a comedy club. Right. So, it's on YouTube. It's, it's on so yeah, it's YouTube. You, you didn't step into a comedy club. You clicked on a link. Twitter, 
it's you're reading news and all of a sudden there's this thing. So it's not in the same context. They don't know you're you're a comedian half the time. There's no just like a text can be misinterpreted with like you and a friend. The same thing kind of happens with Twitter or Instagram. So you also if you no longer have the safety net of it being a comedy club and you no longer have this safety or understanding that you're a comedian to the point where like I've had my jokes go viral and then there's these hate comments under it and I go hey man this is a joke and then there's somebody being like she thinks this language is okay just because yeah. she's a comedian and I go yeah yeah I do <laughs> I and I'll say this lightly I personally am not friends or don't know too many horrific people in comedy mm. I've met them I've experienced them there absolutely is but there's also horrific people in every um uh, field in every yeah. office, whatever. We're just a little more scrutinized because our office travels and we don't have an HR department. So <laughs> I have friends that say even worse things that I do, but I know them as people. They would never hurt anybody. So yeah. when did we decide that words hurt people more than actions? And then also, don't get me wrong, I do think words can hurt. I've had friends be called the N-word. I've had friends have horrific things said to them. I'm not going to pretend that words don't mean anything and that often there's actions that are behind it but these are jokes these mm -hmm. jokes were meant these jokes always had the intention of laughter and and being silly and being weird and being crazy and i think intent is so important so we're not you know trump gets elected by saying some horrific stuff but his words affect a nation my words, you either laugh or you don't laugh. I'm not yeah. trying to, I'm, I'm not eliciting a riot. I'm not trying to get you to hate your neighbor. I'm literally just telling a story and, and giving context to a world that I've created. And I feel like this inability to put context and, 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 and put things where they're supposed to be is really dangerous. Because if a, if a four-year-old said something or a 40-year-old said something, those are pretty different, right? Right. It might be a, like, you might be like a little worried. You're like, oh, that's a pretty harsh word for a four-year-old to be saying. Right. But you're not worried that that four-year-old has a bunch of people behind them starting a riot because of the word they used. So it's the same idea that I'm like, my intention is never to hurt anybody. Every single joke I tell is to make people laugh. And I'm not saying I don't miss the mark and I'm not saying I don't make mistakes, but right. I think we're on a very slippery slope of if you don't let comedians tell jokes, you're also not allowing people to express themselves in any way. And you have to stop looking at every joke as an attack. And I'm not saying you can't be hurt by jokes. I would never tell anybody to, they can't be offended or hurt, but you also have to look into the intention of it. And you also have to look that you might've not been hurt by this joke and you laughed at it. So why is it that you're offended by this joke and I can't tell it anymore? Like why is, if you individualize every joke like that, every joke doesn't work. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I, Absolutely. I have empathy for the people that are hurt or um, conflicted. And every, com like every fan that I've hurt that has gone, hey, I was a fan until this joke. I go, you know what? I'll explain my side of it. You can explain your side. We'll see if we can learn from each other. But if you still feel like I've crossed the line, good luck to you. It's fine. I, I'm never going to bully somebody or make somebody feel bad for no longer being able to tolerate my sense of humor, but mm -hmm. I'm not going to not be who I am if my intention is always to bring laughter and joy. You know, if, if, yeah. my, if my success rate starts to be lower and lower, then that's <laughs> a wake up call, but right. I'm, I'm still winning 
98% of the time and, and hitting the mark where I want to. And it's just and that 2% that gets so glorified in the, in the YouTube comments. Or birth in, control in, doesn't even work 98, <laughs> 90, you know what I mean? So it's like yes. people are asking for you for a subjective thing. They're asking for you to be 100% on the mark, funny, smart, don't hurt anybody every percent of the time. But birth control isn't, doesn't even have the same success rate and every woman is taking it. So right. why am I being held to a higher success rate than a thing that's FDA approved? Right. That's insane. Yeah, or just any what, profession in general too. Like to, to bring it back to the work example, like not everyone can be 100% every single time. I'm gonna make mistakes and I yeah. talk publicly with no filter and yeah. I, I can be corrected but you also have to like, I had a woman that was upset by one line I had on my special about uh, Jewish people. I made like, I basically made fun of a Jewish stereotype. And that's what I did. The whole joke is about my boyfriend and not knowing anything about Judaism, going to a Rosh Hashanah dinner and making fun of the fact that I'm ignorant so that when I do the other part, I say a couple of stereotypes and she goes, you know, those are stereotypes and they've oppressed us. And I go, I know. That's why I said it. Like, yeah. I'm showing my ignorance. Like, I was going to say, if you whole, really unpack the joke, it's really more of my inability to understand what's going on. Yeah. I go, the joke is on me and yeah. my ignorance and what a moron I am. That's yeah. why I said it. Like, that's the, literally the thesis of the joke is I'm <laughs> ignorant to Judaism and I'm stupid. But also in the joke, I'm trying to learn. Isn't mm -hmm. that where, like, real growth is? Is that I'm talking about trying to understand another culture and my and understanding my ignorance of it and the whole joke we're all learning something you, you know what i mean you're learning what i know as a non-jewish person and we're and i'm even teaching people along the way if they didn't know what rosh hashanah meant and it's like it's silly again the whole point is it's a joke but also i that's a joke like i was like yeah. i literally was like i get it i'm i am you know i love my boyfriend i love all my i wanted to be like 98% of my friends are Jewish. That is, that is all the comedy community. It's black people say, and Jewish and, people. Yeah, and New York too. I mean. <laughs> it's so funny because like with the whole Black Lives Matter and stuff like that, like I, like there's a bunch of fans that are just like, da, 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 da. And you're just like, hey man, these are my friends and family. Yeah. They're, all, they're, they're all black and Jewish. That is literally my community. Right. Why would I not support them with my entire heart? And how would you not know? That's the weird thing about all this stuff is like, People can watch a black man on a football field and disassociate from him as a man. And that's what's crazy. So you watch football every Sunday, but he's telling you that he's not being treated human. And you go, that's not my problem. And I don't want to see that on a Sunday. Yep. And that's where I feel like it gets really um, upsetting all around where you're just like, I experience way more of society than most people. I travel up until this pandemic, I'm traveling four days a week. Um, my community is one of the most diverse communities. I mean, I have every religion in comedy, every ethnic background. Most of my friends are, their parents are immigrants. You know, whatever box I might've lived in in New Jersey from my neighborhood, because I would say I, my school, my high school was probably mostly Indian and white people. That's just New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and gymnastics, I would say, um, was more my experience with diversity. It was like almost 50% uh, black girls and white girls. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that's really where the diversity was. And I was a gymnast until I was 14. So I got a little bit of diversity, but if I'm being honest, I, I still lived in a pretty sheltered 
scenario, but right. comedy is really like different ages. Like some of my best friends are in their sixties. That's my parents' age, but yeah. I was doing stand up with them and they took care of me and they and they um, were mentors and peers and I'm recommending them for stuff. And they're rec- so in my mind, again, I still have a lot to learn and I'm always going to be open to learning, but there's a little bit where I fight back on people where they're like, well, you know, and I go, actually, in some ways, I feel like I know more than you yeah. because I experience every diverse person and I check in on them. And I'm in a place where we're so close that sometimes I'll say something. I've had friends that go, Hey, I, that joke actually kind of hurt my feelings. And I go, Oh, why? Because I'm so close that they can come up to me directly and say, hey, when you say that, it kind of makes me sad as somebody that grew up an immigrant. And I go, okay, yeah. what's a better way of saying it? I've, my, my best friend is Hari Kundabolu. I've toured with him and he's called me on a couple of jokes before. And I go, oh, I didn't know that. Let's, mm. Can you help me figure out what's a better way of saying it? But right. it's a little hard where my diverse community has seen me do it for two years. And then Joe Schmo goes, this is bullshit. And I go, that's pretty tested on a diverse group of people. And you're yeah. the first person to say that I'm a bad person. Yeah. I, yeah that, I hate that. It's just like the one comment, the one guy who has, who's hiding behind an avatar that isn't even them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, pretending like I didn't, I didn't focus group this for two years around the world. Exactly. Exactly. But so another aspect of comedy today, obviously, we've, we've kind of t- hinted on it and talked about it throughout the episode, just the inability right now to be with crowds and be in front of an audience. How has, I've talked to a couple comedians and I think, you know, the Zooms, it's hard because do you pause for laughter? Do you wait till every single person is, is done laughing? What, is, what has been like the biggest challenge, obviously, with, without having these, these live audiences for yourself? Um. Yeah, it's just, there's no connection. Um, yeah. It's it's much more distracting. Like occasionally, you know, a waitress drops a drink or a guy might shout out. But for the most part, people are laughing pretty much in unison and or not laughing in unison. That's common as well. <laughs> um, there's there's like a, a group feel and there's a vibe in a room and you don't, there's no vibes. There's no connection. There's no rolling laughter because it's just two people in Arizona and two people in fucking Florida and two people in New Jersey and they're in their own rooms and somebody's vacuum cleaning always for no reason. Um, I'm going to listen to this comedy while doing some chores. I swear to God, there's always someone vacuum cleaning in the back and there's always somebody like yelling at their dog. Like, stop, not now, not now. There's a comedian on stage. Like, <laughs> Sparky. Um, so, so. You're like, go, go on mute, please. Go. Yeah, 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 I do. Sometimes I've stopped in the middle. I was just like, who's who decided to be unmute and yell at their dog? I cannot do this. Um, so there's, it's a lot more distracting. It's also like, we don't really see anybody's faces. You might see like the first front row, um, especially theaters, you barely see anybody's face. Mm-hmm. So you kind of don't have to make eye contact. Now it's like, sometimes I'll do it where I look above my show, above them, or yeah. I'll make it so I can only see myself, which I don't really want to tell jokes to myself, but even just seeing people focused, is like, it's so, it's like distractingly sad. Yes, yes. they're like, they're focusing and then maybe they'll smile, but you're like, am I ruining everyone's night? Like, you're just like, <laughs> um, it's weird. It's a, it's a weird, I'm grateful for it. Like, I'd rather this have happened in 2020 than 1995, but I, it's just not the same. I don't, I had a pretty, I opened for my buddy Alonzo Bowden on, and he has like a really smart audience um, and they were really good. And I felt like they were a little, you know, they muted themselves. Like 
it, there's some laughers, some people were muted. They there were Zoom experts on the comedy. Realm. A little bit, and I do feel people <laughs> are becoming a little bit more experty now, four months in, than they were, you know, yeah. in March. But yeah, it's just it's just not the same. The best part is not leaving my apartment. I love that part. That's my <laughs> yeah. favorite part. Um, because if I'm gonna bomb, it's nice to immediately be able to get ice cream. Um, <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to yes. wait until I get home. I don't have to walk down the street. Like, I, when I, because I don't drink, when I bomb, I go get an insomnia cookie because they're open until 3 a.m. Oh, and best. I swear to God, they have placed every insomnia cookie within two blocks of every comedy club. I don't, I, it's a conspiracy that I have. Yes. I'm sure it's because comedy clubs are near bars, but my conspiracy <laughs> is they know, and I was such a great patron for so long. <laughs> That within two blocks of almost every major comedy club, there's an insomnia cookie. So I, I've had it where I bombed, but I have another spot and I've sent my friend out to go get me a cookie. I'm like, hey, I don't have time to get a cookie. Can you get me a sad cookie? <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite cookie from insomnia? Because we have a lot of, I think we have a lot of fans of insomnia. A lot of cookie they fans? Open, they just opened one, um, like where I used to go to college at Providence College in Rhode Island. So a lot anything of people with are- peanut butter. Oh, anything, anything, you know, they're warm. So anything with peanut butter. Ugh, my girlfriend doesn't let me eat peanut butter anymore. Oh, does she have an allergy? No, no, no. She just it's, hates you. <laughs> you got you nailed <laughs> or it. You, you don't brush your teeth. I don't know what I. I don't. I don't. I don't if know. she doesn't she have read, an allergy, she's just being mean. She read an article. It says. Oh yeah, it's not good for you. Peanut butter, peanuts, peanut butter. They're like truly not good well, for you. If you think about it, like it's the number one allergy in the world. It can't be good for you, right? <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be weird. I'm just just thinking the next generation dating. Are they like you cannot have peanut butter and make out with me? <laughs> like you couldn't. You can't have peanut butter today. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, that's, that's funny though. But um, so- I love the idea that you cheat on your girlfriend by eating like Reese's cups alone. Yeah, frozen. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> You're like- You're me in trouble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I, another question I had. So um, in, your, in your specials, you talk about, you know, your brother who has bipolar disorder. Um, you, you, you mentioned it earlier. You have, dis, you know, you, you're being dyslexic. How is it that comedians and yourself more specifically, how do you find the comedy in such a dark or, you know, in, in some people's minds, right? A dark time or a dark period of, of life. It's natural. It is my really? only natural gift. I, my mom is very much this way. It's so weird. Cause I've, I've been reading more and trying to understand. So they're starting to think, sorry, my mind kind of works backwards. They're starting yeah. to think that the allergies to bring it back to allergies the allergies that we have might have been stemmed from what your grandparents ate, your great great parents ate, and then it starts mm -hmm. to become the same way that they say, like, hey, seaweed is really good for you. But now they're starting to think if you're Mediterranean, it doesn't matter that seaweed has all these antioxidants or all these great things. You're not from Japan. Like your your ancestors, they take in basil. They don't take in fucking um, seaweed. So you yeah. might be like I'm an Italian descended uh american but you know my ancestors grew up on fucking pizza and shit and pasta so that they think that the same way that we're like why are all these asian countries where you able to eat all this rice and they don't get fat but all these americans eat rice and we fucking explode they're starting to think that genetically what your grandparents and great-grandparents ate is the reason why when somebody from japan eats seaweed it's good for them but when we eat seaweed we don't get the same effects that makes so much sense so because <laughs> you go to italy and you're like everyone's eating pizza and i'm eating pizza and gaining 20 pounds <laughs> yeah also the fact that we 
we don't have the same wheat. Like our yeah. wheat is trash. Every yeah. all food in America is garbage food, and it's not real anymore. So even when something is like like unless it's from somewhere else, like it is true that just like Australian or European, they have a different thing. But mm. so that kind of stems back from the same idea where while I haven't had a lot of death in my family, my parents have had a lot of death and they've had a lot of sadness. So my, my mom lost, didn't, lost her dad when she was nine or 10. And then she lost her mom when she was like 19 or 20. My dad lost his mom, both of them tragically. Then uh, he lost his mom tragically when he was like 21 or something. Um, my mom lost a great friend uh, to drunk driving when she was a teenager. They've lost like, and then on top of the fact that they're vets and they lose animals every day and they, yeah. so my parents are very comfortable with death. And my mom, we make dead baby jokes all the time. We truly make horrific. My brother was batshit crazy. He was psychotic breaks, yeah. thought he was Jesus. Like, and it was on and off Burned for three all the years. Everything you know about, like they thought he was schizophrenic for a long time, but it's a little bit different when they're bipolar one. But he was textbook crazy. Mm-hmm. And it was sad and it was scary. And it was a hor- it was a really hard four years as we learned what medic- what was going on with him and getting medications and in and out of mental hospitals. It was a really hard time. We've had some gut laughs and some of the saddest moments. Like my brother at one point was like having another psychotic break and he wouldn't come inside. And my parents had this hammock on like a kind of like porch, like a what do you call it? Like a screened in porch. Yeah. And this hammock and my brother wouldn't come inside. They would literally, my mom would deliver like Wawa sandwiches and (laughs) and like bottles of uh, like tea and stuff, uh, iced tea. And my mom after, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't take his medication. She's like, was threatening to, you know, if he didn't get on medication, she was going to have to take him to the hospital. And he was being like truly scary, crazy. And I remember my mom being like, you got to stop being a feral cat on my porch and fucking get better. Like, and he wouldn't laugh. Like my brother's really funny. He was, he wasn't my brother at that point. Like he was just too out of it. It was the only time he laughed in like six months. Like both of them just hysterically laughed because my mom's yelling at a crazy person, basically being like, I'm tired of treating you like a feral cat and dropping off fucking kibble on the porch. (laughs) Um, But like, or even like the stories my brother would tell me while he was hospitalized, like, not completely himself like there were some really dark tragic moments while it was happening in between when it was happening and after it was happening and we got through it because we made jokes about it and i'm not saying we weren't sad and it wasn't horrific and it's it's not even tragic what my brother had to go through and what he still kind of struggles with but what got us through it was laughter and so i feel fortunate that that's naturally how i process information and i think it's genetic i think my grandparents had a hard life. I think my parents had a hard life and I had my own issues. And I think my way of processing pain is through making jokes about it. And that's why I get really defensive when people go, that's not funny. And I go, if that's not funny to you, that's fine. And, and I'm not, and I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong, Right. but this is, this, I've, I haven't hurt anybody. Yeah. I'm a good person. And I have maintained being a good person and not taking my day out on people because I make jokes to my friends and on stage. Do you see what I'm saying? Like that's yeah. like if, if saying something fucked up on Twitter is a way for me to process pain. Like I, like I, I'm probably going to butcher my own joke. I wonder if I can find it. 
um, it's about my grandmother being dead. So I don't, I don't want to butcher my, <laughs> I want to do it. Yeah. Don't want to butcher that one. I want to, I don't want to butcher it and really make people hate me. Um, oh, here it is. So this is, what date is this? May 13th. So we're two months into the pandemic. Keep in mind, never met my grandmothers, both of them dead. Both of my parents very much miss their grandmothers. My mom right. laughed at this, by the way. I go, everybody's grandmas are dying and I'm feeling so fortunate that mine has always been dead. <laughs> and, and then I just wrote like, uh, you know, I think I nailed that gl- glass half full mentality. Yeah. It's a dark joke. It's a yeah. fucked up joke. Especially right now, because everyone's like, wait a minute, my grandma did die during this. Exactly. You know. And I'm not saying that isn't sad. And I am, and I'm very sad for my friends that have lost their family. But I'm making light of a really scary situation, which is people are dying. People are losing their family. Yeah. And I'm being like, I know it's hard to hear something that fucked up and think I'm being silly, but I am. I don't, I don't, first of all, I'm not saying good, your grandmother's dead. I'm just saying I, I feel kind of good that mine, mine are, and I don't have to lose them right now. Right. I never had to lose them. I never knew them. Right. No, but Liz, this has been an absolute blast. I know you got to run soon, but I do have to ask you, we, we ask this from all of our guests. So I'm actually interested to hear, to hear your answer on this. If you were to write your autobiography today, what would be the title and why? What would my auto- autobiography, I did my best. <laughs> I think it would be pretty like self-deprecating. Mm-hmm. I, I did my best. Like, <laughs> sorry. You get what you get, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Liz, this has been a, a lot of fun. I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story and telling us a little bit more about yourself. And uh, I wish you all the best in all the new comedy that's going to be happening post-pandemic. And uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch. So huge shout out to Liz Mealy for coming on this week's episode. Uh, be sure to check her special out on YouTube, Self Help Me, and follow her on Instagram at Liz Mealy. All things Liz will be in the description of this week's podcast. I had an absolute blast with this interview. I learned so much about stand-up comedy, but also the world that stand-up comedians face every single day. I think with this cancel culture that we have in our society, it's interesting to get the perspective of a stand-up comedian in this world that we live in. So big shout out to Liz. I had an absolute blast with that interview and that does it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple podcasts, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, we are there. So you don't miss an episode, hit that follow button and be sure to follow us on Instagram at normal guy, lazy eye, but that does it for the shameless plugs. I will see you all next Wednesday.